God, we pray that you would help us to see today, that you would help our hearts and minds to understand these things. Clear out all other distractions that we might understand, that we might recognize what is going on here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A modern-day film director will use multiple cameras and vantage points, camera angles, to get exactly the shot that he'd like to get of a particular scene. Uh, perhaps, maybe everyone here has at some point been in an IMAX theater, either sitting in an IMAX or standing in an IMAX, and you love the sense that you get from these cameras that are available now of being in the scene itself, of being part of what is taking place. Now, this is an older film, but bear with me for a moment. Do you remember the movie The, the, uh, the Fugitive with Harrison Ford? Well, in the beginning of the movie, as I recall it, there is a train wreck. There's a train wreck. I think the train slams into a bus that is across the tracks at some point. And I remember listening to the director talk about and describe that particular shot. And this is probably small in terms of what's used today, but in any case, in that shot, they had 16 cameras engaged to get exactly what they wanted to get from different perspectives. They actually used a train and wrecked the train for the shot. Uh, so they had to get it right. They, were, they had one shot to do it. They had to use all the cameras, like I think three or four of them were destroyed uh, in the actual train wreck. Others took time to be unearthed and dug out so they could try and find uh, the film and, and get you to see what they wanted you to see. Luke holds no camera, and he himself was not there when they crucified Jesus. But what he has done is taken the sources that were available to him, the witnesses of the event that were available to him, and he has tried to take this information and put it together in a way that allows his readers, his hearers of his gospel, to see the crucifixion, to work their way around the various parts of the crucifixion from a variety of different vantage points, quickly shifting between people and between perspectives that are going on in this passage. He doesn't hold the camera steady on any one person or any one group for very long before switching to another so that we can see what is happening. It is, of course, a brutal scene. And yet, neither Luke nor any of the other gospel writers seem to spend any time focusing in on the macabre aspects of this. They're not into the gory details. We find out nothing about the composition of the cross, nothing about the nails, the hammer, the process, the screams, the blood. We don't read any of that when we look at this story. This is no Quentin Tarantino presentation of the suffering of Christ. Quentin Tarantino, a director known for pausing long over violence and blood as it spews forth on the screen. Crucifixion is gruesome, but that's not the point. As Luke tells the story, the question, of course, is what is happening here? 
And how, in the first place, did the people who were standing around react to what was happening? How did they interpret it? And for Luke, for every gospel writer, he wants those who are reading the story to ask the question, you see what is happening, what do you say? How do you respond to the events that are unfolding before you? What is your vantage point on this story? This for me, the story of the crucifixion, was the critical point in my own conversion. I'd heard lots of things before. We all hear lots of things about history. We all watch lots of news with stories that do not impact us at all. This is the story that will not let us go. You cannot read this story as just another news flash in front of us that has no impact, as just another piece of history that is going on, as just something you've heard before. You must confront Jesus on the cross, and you must be confronted by it and say, what do you think? What is happening here? How do you respond to these events? So let's allow these vantage points to, st to speak to us in, in wrestling with those questions. Let's look at the cast of characters, the actions that they take, and the words that they speak. Real simple. We'll go through each one of those very quickly. The cast in the first place. The first person in the scene, besides Jesus himself, is Simon of Cyrene. And we know very little about this Simon who is here set before us as one who is called to carry the cross. Mark notes that this Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, given the fact that Mark notes he's the father of these men, it is possible that Mark is trying to reference people who are known in the context of the early church. And that way he identifies him, and so we can hope that Simon and his family were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps after, if not before, this event takes place, but we cannot be 100% sure about that. Next, what we have in verse 27, and Simon gets one verse, verse 26, what we have in 27 is a collection of people who are making their way along, who are on the route as Jesus and the cross and the other criminals go by. We saw the people, we've seen the people move in various ways throughout these chapters in Luke. We saw them regathered for Pilate's final sentencing and shouting out crucify at that time, and now the people are once again brought to bear in this scene of the crucifixion. Now, amongst those people, we have particularly pointed out to us these women who are part of the crowd, these daughters of Jerusalem. In a few minutes, we'll consider what they're doing, but just note that Luke points out specifically the women who are amongst this group of people. Uh, verse 32, we are introduced not by name, of course, but by description to two criminals, two robbers, thieves, who are moving along with Jesus. We do not know their names, but nevertheless, there they are as part of the story. Jesus had said back in chapter 22, verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
for what is written about me has its fulfillment. They are there because that was predicted, that they would be there. That is quoted from Isaiah 53. It is the thing that is printed on the front of your bulletins this morning, and likewise from Psalm 22 also, that Jesus is put in this spot. Next, we see in our scene that the Roman soldiers are there. And in verse 35, we see not only the people once again, but we see that at least some of the Jewish leadership who has been behind these events starting later the previous night and continuing through the night and through the various trials of Jesus, some of them at least are there as well as representatives. And of course, Jesus himself is part of this and at the center of it. So what are they doing? What are the people who are gathered around in this scene doing at the time? Well, Jesus is being taken, of course. He's being led by uh, the, the Roman soldiers along with the other criminals to the place of execution, to the place that is called the skull here by Luke. In the other writers, we can see that in Aramaic it was Golgotha, and then it was also called uh, Calvary. So all of those names with reference to the same place. We don't know why it was called the place of the skull. Uh, you you want to imagine there were other skulls there. That doesn't seem to be the emphasis. Rather, perhaps more the shape of the place that is referenced. But they are proceeding to the place of execution. Typically speaking, the condemned person would bear the cross, would carry at least the cross beam as they made their way to this place of execution. One can only imagine what that was like. You can only imagine the fear that would be in you, the, the, the desperation, the pain, the humiliation, the looking for some type of means of escape, but realizing your inevitable painful death awaits you. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, begins by carrying his own cross, but apparently as a result of the floggings, the beatings that he has received prior to this, becomes too weak to carry his own cross, and thus this Simon of Cyrene is conscripted to be a cross-bearer for the king. And oh, how I would like to know more about him. I would like to hear what his story was, what his thoughts were about that day. But it is enough for us that regardless of his faith, he becomes for us a picture of discipleship. That, and put that together with what we see very next, and that is that the people are following him. Again, for a moment, regardless of the motives associated with that following, you put those two things together from the Gospel of Luke, and we've got a picture created for us, a scene created for us. This is what Jesus said discipleship would be like. It will be those who take up their cross and follow me. And so here in both the people and in Simon, we have this picture set forth for us. Now, the women, the action that the women are taking here is that of mourning and lamenting. And initially, we are inclined to view this sympathetically, to think that this is a good thing, but we'll, we'll consider that more in just a moment 
uh, when we look at the response that Jesus gives to them. We'll come right back to it. Uh, we, we have the actions of the soldiers that are described for us. The soldiers, of course, are crucifying Jesus, putting the nails in his hands, securing him to the cross, and they are crucifying the two other criminals and putting them on either side of Jesus, one on the left, one on the right. We see these soldiers also acting as they cast lots for his garments, and nearly every single phrase in this account can be traced to something in the Old Testament, most of them to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, but other places, casting lots in fulfillment of what we read, Psalm 22, 18, mocking him, again, Psalm, both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, offering him sour wine to drink, Psalm 69. And in the meantime, we read in verse 35, the people stood by watching. So they are seeing all of the things that are taking place regarding Jesus. And the rulers, that is to say the Jewish rulers, are there scoffing. Jesus himself, what is he doing? He's suffering. He's submitting. He is obeying. He's bearing the sins of the world. He's speaking. He's prophesying. He's warning. He's interceding. He's saving. He's comforting. He's doing a lot for a man who is nailed to a tree. Let's move to consider now the words themselves that are spoken in these various situations. No words recorded with regards to Simon. The actions are allowed to speak for themselves, no words from him, no words to him. But these women who are there are weeping and lamenting, and we don't get the words themselves, we don't know exactly what they were saying. But it's unclear as we look at this exactly what does this mean? What, what does it mean that they were engaged in this practice? It could have been that this was simply a public custom a public weeping and lamenting that went on in a situation such as this. Or it could be that they were simply overwhelmed by the situation itself. Emotionally, it's difficult to witness someone being led towards their death. But Jesus, when he responds to them, it's not particularly gentle. It's, it's, in fact, very stern, the words that he says to them. It is prophetically stern in what he says to them and how he warns them about what is going to take place. And this is a vantage point issue. It's a question of where you stand and how you interpret the events that are taking place right now. When they look at Jesus, when they see him, bound, heading up to this place of the skull, they look at him as a condemned man. And that's their conclusion. That's their vantage point. This is a condemned man. Jesus says to them, in effect, my condemnation is not your problem. It should not be my condemnation the object of your weeping. Why? Your condemnation is your problem. 
That's a vantage point issue. Jesus reads the situation completely differently than they do. They want to weep for him. Jesus wants to weep for them and to warn them of what is about to take place in Jerusalem. Jesus, as you recall, that came into Jerusalem, and when he came into Jerusalem at Jerusalem and looked over the city, he wept because of the destruction of the city. He wept for that which he foresaw in the fact and caused by the fact that Jerusalem has a long history of rejecting prophets. And in particular, Jerusalem did not understand the day of their visitation. And so Jesus weeps for the people of Jerusalem. He doesn't want them weeping for him. He wants that turned around the other direction. They're the ones who ought be weeping for themselves, and it should be a weeping of repentance. When he went into the temple, he taught about this. He said, this is what is taking place, and this is what is going to soon take place, namely, your destruction. And it's awful. It's awful when he describes it a couple of chapters ago, and it's awful when he describes it in this particular section with the words that he talks about here. What should be a blessing to them, having children, nursing children, That's a great Hebrew blessing. He says, that's a curse. It's going to be so bad that you're going to wish that had never happened. He had told people to watch and to pray, and these words that he says to them at this particular moment, they sound harsh to us, and they are strong, but they're the words of a prophet, of a faithful prophet, who is trying to get hold of the hearts of people and turn them around. They are misperceiving condemnation. The next spoken words in this passage belong to Jesus as well. As he has been crucified, we read verse 34, words of words. What can you say about words like this from the crucified Son of God? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. J.C. Ryle and so many of the great commentators have such great things to say about this, but he writes it this way. When the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. So as soon as he's put on the cross, the nails are driven in, the blood is flowing down. The high priest, who is also the sacrifice, begins to intercede for his people. Praise God for these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a prophet, he spoke to the women. And now, as a priest, he speaks to his father for us. Way back, you'll recall it, they're well-known words, the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount, as it's recorded for us in Matthew. Way back then, Jesus had instructed crowds, his disciples, in words that are almost, they, they seem to be impossible to follow. But what he had said to them was this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. 
and now, at this point, at this point of points in his life, he does it. He intercedes for those who are abusing him. And in so doing, says to us Christians, do it. Do the same thing. This is what love looks like. It doesn't look like how the world defines love. This love, this doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to us on a human level that Jesus should intercede on behalf of those who are committing this great crime against him. And yet, there he does. And he says, look, look at this example and go and do likewise. He pleads for them. Because like the women, he knows that the understanding of what is taking place at this particular time is dark. The women didn't get it. They didn't understand what was happening at this particular time. And neither do the people for whom Jesus is praying. That's why he says they know not what they are doing. They don't understand. Are they culpable? Yes, they're still culpable. But there is something there in the fact that they don't understand what they're doing that allows Jesus to reach out and to pray and to intercede on their behalf. They don't see that even as they put the nails in his hands, even as they stand him up, even as all of them gather around to mock him, that he's not the one condemned. That they're the ones who are condemned. They don't understand that they are the guilty ones who need forgiveness, and he's the innocent one. Who knows how this prayer of Jesus was answered? Who can measure that? Was, was it answered? Is, is the answer to this prayer contained in the, the words, the confession of the criminal, of the thief that we'll read about? Was it, was it this prayer that caused the centurion to speak? That'll be next week. Was it this one? Was it this prayer that enabled Pentecost to take place? Where after the preaching, where, where Peter's saying, you put him to death, this Jesus whom God had made both Lord and Christ, you put him to death, and they were cut to the heart, the people of Jerusalem and those who had come to visit. Was it this prayer that gets answered? We don't know. But what a prayer at what a moment from the Son of Man. But despite the kindness of Jesus, the words of abuse continue, and they continue from every quarter, and we're allowed to work through each one of the quarter. In the first place, we look at the Jewish leadership. Go ahead, Mr. Savior. Mr. Chosen One. They're throwing out all these lines, just collecting things up from the Old Testament, from places in Isaiah. Mr. Savior, Mr. Chosen One, Mr. Messiah, save yourself. This is the abuse of Jesus. And listen to what is taking place here. From their vantage point, his condemnation proves their point. His condemnation proves that he's not who he said he was. Got it? That's the way they view this event. See, he's up on the cross. It proves our point. He's not who he said he was. From Jesus' perspective, from his vantage point, 
His condemnation and even their abuse prove that he's exactly who he says he was. They're looking at the exact same event. Jesus hanging on the cross. And they're saying, see, you're not who we said you are. And Jesus is saying, see, I'm who I said I was. My condemnation is not mine. It's for you. Your vantage point is just wrong. From the Roman perspective, of course, the, the, the insults that are hur- hurled by the soldiers are not as religious as the Jewish insults would have been. Theirs are rather referencing kingship. Why? Because kingship is about power. So you're a king. Let's see how mighty you are. Come on down from that cross if you are a supposed king. If you're powerful after all, Mr. King, with a sign above your head that says you are the king of the Jews, well then go ahead. Show us some of that king power stuff and get down off of this cross that we just nailed you to. And then we come finally to the words of the criminals and then Jesus to the one criminal. The first criminal, Mr. Messiah, save yourself. And for good measure, since he is hanging on a cross next to him, save us. Save yourself. Save us. Jesus is mocked even by a dying criminal. And just when it seems that all is lost, just when it seems that there's no one who understands, no one who seeks for God, no one who can comprehend this situation properly, a crack appears in the foundation of Satan's kingdom. One man whose soul is about to be as condemned as his body is currently being condemned, has something else pierce into him besides nails. Light pierces into this thief on the cross when it is least expected. He gets it. He understands all is dark. Why? Because this is your hour and the power of darkness. Remember the words of the arrest? This is your hour and the power of darkness. All is dark. All of the vantage points are mistaken. But this man is given the grace to realize that the kingship of Jesus comes through the suffering that his enthronement and his power comes after this humiliation. As far as we know, he's the only one on the whole planet who gets it. Nobody else gets it. Nobody else understands these things. Now, I know we can't peer into all of the hearts of all of the people, and there are certainly faithful people around at this time, other faithful people, but it seems that nobody got that the power of the king will be exercised through the suffering of the king, through the cross and the endurance of the cross, that his kingship will be on the other side of that. And that man, by the grace of God, by the working of the Holy Spirit, 
at the ninth hour, at close to the last breath that he ever take was, take, would take, was given a grace to recognize. Kingship belongs to this one. Power belongs to this one. And he's able to say to the other, we're guilty and he is innocent. We are properly receiving condemnation for what we have done, and he is not. And he turns to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The prophet spoke to the women. The priest spoke to the father. And now the king who doesn't look like a king, but has the power and the authority to make declarations, even in his most weak, his weakest condition, he turns to speak to this one. And he speaks to him with authority, with power, with assurance, with confidence, with comfort. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What words, what comfort. Paradise is a borrowed phrase, refers to gardens, beautiful places. Today, that's where you are going to be. And so the, the, the question, you watch this, you see these people, see what they're doing, hear their words, is what is your vantage point on this condemnation of Jesus? How do you look at this? Join the dying thief in believing in Jesus. We deserve the condemnation. And he did not. He was condemned for all who will believe in him. And that is the vantage point. You either live under the condemnation or you are freed from the condemnation, recognizing that Jesus was there instead of you. The call of the thief on the cross is clearly not wait till your last moment. Live the way you want to live. Wait till that last breath. Call out to Jesus. The call is now whatever your situation is. You might be on death's doorstep. We don't know. You might be, though. Call now. Join him in recognizing this Savior, and in so doing, it will be declared of you. There's now, for, now therefore, no condemnation for that one because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together.